0: and welcome to another one in our long-running series of financial well-being podcasts. My name is David Lloyd, uh, writer, broadcaster, actor, actor. Actor? Tell us all about the acting, oh, David. Oh, yes, very exciting. So I'm going to be in a play Woo-hoo! at the Bristol Old Vic in March 2020, March the 11th to the 28th. What's the play called? It's called The Red Lion by Patrick Marber, and it's a three-hander set in the dressing rooms of a, a non-league football club And it's about football, but it's about, as ever, much more than that. Life. About life in general, yeah. And it's a great part for me. And it's going to be my first professional stage appearance for 20 years. Good Lord. So I'm hugely excited Yeah, you're learning the lines like crazy. Uh, How do I'm going to do... How do you learn lines? I've always wondered that. Well, there's two ways of doing it. One is you literally just have to sit down and kind of learn them, cover them up, you know, read through... Get to the queue line and go. Oh, do I know what the next line is? And you so you do it that way. But actually, you really cement them by being in the rehearsal room and just going over it again and mm. again and again. So, because I'm you know 20 years older than I was when I last did this, my memory is not quite what it was. So I need to make sure that when I walk into that rehearsal room, I am what we say off the book. So I know the lines pretty well. The off way. the
1: book, literally. You don't need to look at the book exactly, to you do your lines.
0: Crystal, yeah. yeah. old fixer
2: special venue to be doing it.
0: It is. Yeah, no, I'm very I've lived in Bristol since 1996 and it's my first time acting at the Old Vic. So I'm absolutely thrilled about it. And tickets really currently well. available.
1: Tickets
2: currently available. Yeah, yeah the get them there while they are. Me and exactly. Mrs Emma are, are currently looking to to book some tickets to come and watch you, so Fantastic. we shall try and make sure there's a I'll work out when Chris is going and go on a different date. So well, that means I'll have two people one night and two people another night in the audience. Fantastic! Do
0: you think we do a podcast from the foyer? Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: anyway, so that's me, and um, you've just heard uh, the voices of my two other co-conspirators here. But perhaps you'd like to introduce yourselves as well. So my name's Chris Bud. I'm the author of the Financial Wellbeing book, and
1: yeah do lots of things in life these days perhaps the main one being the initiative for financial well-being uh, or the ifw which is going great guns we've got lots of exciting things going on with that including a conference in may so uh, if anybody wants to get involved with that especially if they're in the financial advice world drop us a line members at
2: ifw.org.uk Fantastic. And who are you? Who <laughs> are you? Yeah. Uh, I'm Tom Morris, also known as Tomo, uh, director and chart financial planner at Ovation Finance, who are the, is it sp- would you say sponsors? I guess we're... No, not officially, because I have got the name class on it, but they pay for it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely Ovation's uh, podcast under the banner of financial well-being. Yeah. So yes, that's my day job. Excellent. Fantastic. Well... That's
0: who we are. What's on today's podcast, Chris? Today, David, we're going to listen to a chat with author T- Anthony
1: Taz-Tazgal. He's known as Taz to everybody. He and I we share a publisher in Lid Publishing. Met uh, a few years ago at an event for Lid and we just immediately hit it off. And I've been wanting to interview him about behavioural stuff. Things that we we don't do right and we and we kind of do worse for ourselves as we go through life without actually realising it. And he's going to tell us some of those. Interestingly from an advertisers perspective
0: there's a little bit of how advertisers take advantage of our behavioral biases interesting chat excellent well I look forward to that but before we do that obviously we have to come to what is the high point of these podcasts so soon (laughs) this is the bit this is the bit that people look forward to it's not about you David let's be honest exactly we get tweets we get emails I get carrier pigeon messages. I get people knocking on my door in the middle of the night saying, what's Titus Tomo's tip going to be this week? The expectation out there is absolutely massive. Palpable. And the great thing about Tomo is he never fails to deliver. He always comes up with an absolute corker. But before we come on to the main event... Easy (laughs) tiger. Yeah, before we come on to the main event... Chris, have you got one for us this week? I do, actually. Uh, there was a, a bit of a Twitter chat a little while ago,
1: particularly with a chat called Alex Riley, who is at Alexandre. I don't think that's quite how you pronounce it, but it's Ari, Alexandre Riley. And it was all about how to get kids to understand money, which is a really important subject. I I got my two kids when they were kind of nine and ten to write down the pocket money that they would get each week and then write down all the money they spend on, well, sweets, basically. And then I wouldn't give them pocket money the next week until I saw their little cash flow. And every single week, they quickly ran to the other room, just wrote in lots of nonsense because they hadn't done it at all and then handed it to me. So I'm not quite sure if that worked. We'll see in in the future. One of the things that Alex did with his kids was kids always have uh, piggy banks, jars for putting money in he gave his kids clear jars to put their money in. Now, it was really important by using clear jars because then he said his kids could see the money grow. And one of his kids, his son, he wanted an Xbox. And so every time he took money out to go and spend it on some plastic rubbish, Alex's words, he could see the objective getting further away. So by seeing the money in the clear jar, he could see the Xbox getting closer. And eventually he did buy himself an Xbox. Having a clear jar makes you question your buying
0: choices. I thought that was a really interesting idea. Yeah, What a good idea. I suppose you could even, by, by doing a rough average of the sort of coins that were being put in, you could actually, knowing what an Xbox costs, you could put a line in the jar. So yeah. when you hit that line, you're yeah. going to be there or thereabouts. Yeah. The old Blue Peter um, thing <laughs> yes. that they used to have. The, the, totalizer. Totalizer. that yeah, was a good idea. Yeah. What a great idea. <laughs> oh, it's a really good tip. Thank you, Chris. I'm afraid I haven't got anything this week, but you know what? That really doesn't matter because we know from experience that the man sitting here to my left never fails to deliver. So, Tomo, what is your tight-ass tip for this week? Right, this one. Again,
2: I like to reach out to my fans <laughs> and... Understand that must take you a long time because there are so many of them. I was, uh, I was copied in on a tweet from a, uh, a, an accountant that we know, uh, Della Hudson, and she put me on to a chap called Joseph Gibson who tweeted, if you consistently check out of hotels and Airbnbs six minutes late, after 240 stays, you actually accumulate a whole day for free. <laughs> so there you go well as an airbnb
0: host myself i'm not going to accept that that (laughs) because that's basically ripping me off for six minutes of my time every time that's a nice attitude though isn't it just it's it's about making the most of life isn't it and appreciating what you've got i like that (laughs) thank you very much for that tomo um fantastic to hear from you as ever so let's get to the main event which is the interview chris tell us a bit more about taz
1: So Taz refers to himself as being a trainer, an author, and a strategist. He wrote a great book, which I really recommend, called The Inspiratorium, which is all about how to inspire you with ideas. He's also written the storytelling book, and he has a brand new book out called Incitations. He's an expert in advertising and marketing, spent a career in understanding how people make their buying decisions. He therefore knows an awful lot about behavioral economics and decision-making. Uh, it wasn't the best of connections with my interview with Taz, so please to be a little bit patient, but trust me, it's worth listening to. Here's my chat with Anthony Taz, Tazgal. Taz, thank you so much for joining us to the podcast today. Thanks, Chris. Uh, your bio is all about marketing and communications. So tell us, just before we get into the subject matter, how you know so much of finance.
3: Behavioural economics, I'm going to call it, if that's all right. I mean, okay. it's got various different names, behavioural science, behavioural finance, behavioural economics. But it started off when I got very interested in really understanding why I made choices. Because a lot of the clients I worked with, both in finance, I worked with a company that was at the time known as Abbey National, which some of your listeners might remember. So um, I worked with them for a while and worked with finance and non-finance brands. And then what I found was that I was working with clients all the time who basically didn't necessarily have a theory about how decisions were made. So, I got very interested in this thing called behavioral economics, which really was sort of trying to create a theory that everyone could sign off to rather than having sort of one group of clients saying, actually, we need to tell people lots of facts and give them lots of information and data about, you know, interest rates and lots of KPIs and numbers. And then, other sort of people particularly uh, creative people and account planners like me saying actually no the human brain doesn't really work like that too much choice Uh, and there was this conflict and i just kept sort of butting up against it the first piece of sort of analysis and psychological statistical research they did was on what i'm sure many of you know as now is called loss aversion
1: yeah, 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 yeah. That's
3: something we've had talked about. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have. And, and they, they first looked at this idea and thought, well, actually, do, do, human beings actually make decisions and choices in the way that economists think they do in a perfect world of perfect information? <laughs> and, spoiler alert, that's not what Kahneman and Tversky found in the sort of late 70s. found that. As you know, for example, uh, people hate losing more than they like winning, and there's not a sort of linear, rational, uh, one-for-one correlation. something like roughly two and a half times. People feel the loss of, of happiness or utility or prosperity roughly two and a half times when they lose 100 pounds than they feel they gain it for winning 100 pounds. So, uh, economics, in its classical sort of guise, is so busy on building models realizes that sadly that those models tend not to reflect sort of human reality so what they're talking about is is a map but it's not the actual territory and I've always admired that so so one of the key bits of language that I've always liked is a man called David Eagleman and he's written a number of books about the brain because obviously a lot of this is neuroscience Mm -hmm. and he did a a BBC and PBS documentary a few years back I think just simply called The Brain and one of his books I think it's Incognito he has this wonderful expression, which I have to credit him with. I'd love to steal it, and so it's my own. He says, we don't think the way we think we think. And I usually pause at this moment yeah, for sort of... Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Just say that one more. We don't think the way we think we think. Okay. Yes.
3: Yeah. Which I think it has sort of, you know, Buddhist sort of, you know, epigrammatic. And he does write like that and speaks like that. He's, he's annoyingly bright and extremely handsome. And, but I just love, I love the way he talks about that. And I think that, for me, is one of the sort of, Summaries of the whole behavioral economics enterprise. We like to think, and certainly classical economic e- economics in the past has you know, emphasized that sort of model, the homo economicus. We like to think that we think in a sort of perfect world with full information, we're entirely rational, we're entirely individual, we're entirely free, we're unconstrained by context, etc. Any human being who doesn't have to be Richard Thaler or, or Daniel Kahneman, any human being knows that by and large that isn't the case Mm. there are some there are some examples obviously where we we operate with with maximum information and choose maximum utility but by and large that isn't the case we're far more influenced by our emotions far more influenced by other people we're far more influenced by the context we're in who we're with what we're trying to achieve who we're trying to flatter how we feel about ourselves so all those sorts of things that i think for me when i read about them go back to your first question i thought why is no one in marketing or business or sales or finance talk about this? Why, why is this a sort of like a, a, a dirty secret? And the more I got into it, A, I just find it amazingly fascinating and still do to this day. But B, I just found it was incredibly relevant to pretty much all clients that I've worked with in, in finance, you know, and, and beyond.
1: Longer term listeners will remember a chat with Greg Davis concluding a couple of interviews we have by saying that we are almost... Programmed to make bad decisions about money, it's Mm. inevitable, Mm. and that's in the same space, isn't
3: it? Um, It is. It is. I'm I'm always loath to say together whole hog as as some interpreters of behavioural economics or behavioural finance say, and just lump lump human beings together as a collection of biases. I I think that's a slightly unfair and negative way of putting it. We we are programmed to, for example apply what Kahneman calls cognitive ease now cognitive ease basically means that our brain doesn't make the best decision it usually makes the most effortless decision and again I usually pause for some sort of humble contemplation after that because I think that's a massive insight for anyone working in in finance generally the the people I I come across in that sector you know are very financially literate they're very good with numbers they're very good at communicating or, or valuing the importance of communicating that what what this sort of drives a sort of coach and horses through our brain actually values and chooses what is easy convenient and effortless how much actual control do we have when we think we're making decisions the whole system one system two which i'm sure your listeners have heard of already heard that before, yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah, it's it's brilliant. a very interesting yeah, it's I'll go through it, it's a very, I don't want to simplify it, and Kahn himself and, and Stanovich, who came up with it, would, would say it's more nuanced than this. By and large, there are two um, parallel processes of thinking that go on the brain. So, system two, which I'll start with, is the rational conscious process, which is more laborious, it's slightly more thought more through, and what Kahn would call the slow part of thinking. And it's slightly, but not hugely... More tuned to thinking about the future. System one, however, which is partly but not really wholly to do with where, where Freud was talking with the unconscious, system one is the implicit, the unconscious. It's where emotions live, and it's where these stored heuristics live. Heuristics are shortcuts that the brain devises after a while to make things easy, not necessarily best, but easy. Um, And what behavioural economics suggests is that these two processes are very different. They pretty much interact all the time. But one of the myths we have is that we are in control and system two is in control. The rational, logical, thinking, individual system two. But spoiler alert, it isn't. System one actually runs the show. And system one is by definition unconscious, very little linkage to it, very little connection to it. So it's very hard to understand. So again, one of the things I do a lot of is market research to try and derive insights. Most market research is speaking system two to system two. So in the way that we're having a conversation, but the real the stuff that is motivating our choices is happening at system one level to which we don't really have much access, which again makes it quite tricky. Carmen calls system one the secret author of our choices. And the fact is a lot of the decisions that we think we're making, you know, rationally, logically, coherently, consistently at a system two level, we're not system two is basically coming up with an excuse or a story for what system one has actually decided. It's like, if you, I don't know, you, you want to buy a new record, a record player or a car and you go back and you tell your, your wife or your husband, well, you know, it's, it's a really efficient car. You know, it does, you know, 30, 40 miles to the gallon. And no, everyone knows that's not the reason you bought it. You bought it because it looks nice or it's a Porsche or the person up the road's got one. But, Often, system two will spin us a story about actually what system one really wants and has obscured, if you like, the truth. So you know the bat. Do you know the bat and ball exercise? No, go on. Okay, I'll do. And again, maybe your listeners can do this when they're listening to it. So, if I say to people, okay, there is a bat and a ball, and together they cost one pound ten p, and the bat costs more a pound more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now, when you ask that question of people, something like 70% of maths graduates and 90% of the population give what answer?
1: They're going to answer
3: 10p. 10p, right. And I, I'm sure your extremely financially literate audience uh, will immediately discern the fact that can't, that can't be the case. Because yeah, if, the ball, yeah, if exactly. the ball is and the bat is a pound more than the ball, the bat itself costs one pound ten, so the total is one pound twenty. Yeah, so it's 5p. It's 5p. Now, i sat in rooms, people are literally throwing vegetables and fruit at me for saying, no, it's definitely 10p. I'm sure it's 10p. It's really 10p. And I go, I can actually prove it's not. The point being, that's your system one in action. Your system one goes, oh, I know what that sort of answer is. I've seen that sort of question before. It's easy. It's 10. So again, this is one of the reasons I like doing training because I actually show people that their system one is doing all these things underneath the surface, underneath the bonnet. And as we started off saying, a lot of the times it leads us to make the wrong decision or poor decisions or inaccurate decisions. So a lot of what we talk about with behavioural economics is saying that actually often what we have to do is realise when we are being misled by our system one, by our unconscious, by our emotions, by social pressures and social norms, and actually sit calmly and get system two to say, hang on a minute, before you do that, just let's... Pause for a moment mm. behavioral economics is saying oh we've got to talk to system one and target system one and do advertising and product and promotion to system one yes and or yes but as you just pointed out what what behavioral economics in my world is, about is is knowing when we're being misled by system one how to target system one but also on what occasions where system one is actually the problem and where we need to get system two to be a sort of hand on the shoulder So, again, one of the things we're very bad at is predicting the future. So I think it was Steve Jobs, you know, is isn't the consumer's job to know what they want, because we don't. By and large, if you ask people what they want, um, I think Daniel Gilbert talks about we don't predict, we next. Our brain basically says, well, the future's going to be a bit like the past with a bit of the present, and that's nexting. But we don't predict, we're not very good at imagining black swans. The black swan is obviously something that's unpredictable that you can't, as I say, extrapolate. So what they did with um, the AXA product, Save More Tomorrow, was to do two things. One was to change the default, which is one of the classic behavioral economics tricks. So the original default was you have to, to sign up. You know, you tick a box to say, I want to be in it. They changed that. So the default was you had to actually sign up. In other words, you were automatically wrong unless you said otherwise. So again, there's an issue here about, you know, control and, what a failure line paternalism, because in, in a sense you'll be nudged to make a decision which is in your best interest. But that was the first thing that they tried. But the second thing was really interesting because, of course, the thing about pensions, not just for younger people, but especially for them, is system one says, you know, I need my money now. I'm having my life. This is all happening. I've got boyfriend, girlfriend, flat, food, drink, Kanye West albums to buy. And I need the money now. Why would I invest it in, in the future, especially if the future is unpredictable? So, the little trick that they brought in, which was fascinating, which, which made this product take off, trying to address the sort of system one issue. And here, here it is it was very simple. It's you only pay into your pension after you get a rise. So, you don't get loss aversion. You don't get the sense of actually, I'm using something that I have now, my salary, to put into some imaginary, predict, unpredictable pot that I'll need when I'm sort of 50 and 60 no longer listening to Kanye West so that was the trick those two tricks firstly setting the default so it was opt out rather than opt-in which was a massive change and again if you look at things like kidney donation across country it's absolutely nothing to do with how people think about kidney it's simply whether you give them opt out or opt-in that was the first trick the second trick was you only pay in after you get a rise so you get a five pound rise A 1,000 pound goes into your pension, your brain still thinks it's gained, rather than just taking a 1,000 pound away and you feel loss aversion, you feel that you've had something taken away. The government is looking at, for example, at how you apply that to taking taxes from from people as well. So I think that's one of the things that I think, again, it has a very practical application in terms of finance and pension.
1: I wonder if that's something that people can use as a tip for personal finances, so um, you know, every time you get a windfall uh, Absolutely It might just be a small winning on the lottery it might be a little inherited, but always put some of that and make a decision to put a percentage of that into some sort of a long-term term saving so it doesn't feel so painful I, I, I see that
3: Yeah, I, I, and I think that's why look, I've heard loss of version discussed a lot in a slightly academic dry way but I think that's absolutely, what you're saying is an absolutely valid and useful way of talking about it Another thing I would suggest Is beware of anchoring. So anchoring is where our brain needs like an anchor for a number. And again, I think finance companies can be very good at doing this, and actually some doing it for nefarious purposes. So often they'll give you an anchor. It might be an annual rate or a monthly fee or whatever. Just beware because our brain will use that anchor very often without thinking why. And again, as an experiment, one of the economists talk about you ask people to sort of tallest tree. In your and in the first case, people have said, okay, do you think it's more or less than 1,200 feet? And in the second case, a different group of people have said, well, okay, do you think it's more or less than 180 feet? Now, in the first case, the average height that people guess is about 840 feet. 1,200 1, is their anchor. They've no idea, but they know it's probably not that tall. But their anchor is 1,200, is 1, so they'll say it's about 800. The second group know that 180 probably isn't isn't that tall. And they'll go higher than that. So they say 282. Now, the difference between 844 and 282, it's like two and a half times the difference. So again, we have to be very, very careful about numbers that are given to us that we just take as an anchor because our brain will just latch onto them.
1: So this this, this leads me to my last last area of thought, which Mm. is... Uh, and I'm going to be a little cynical, if I may, in order okay. that you can promote uh, the idea of, of the beneficial use of this information. You've mentioned a, a number of times that uh, you do work and the companies use this information to help their marketing. Yes. I come from a place of being suspicious of marketing and advertising.
3: Yes. Um, yes.
1: They're trying to, advertising more than marketing is trying to get me to do something I don't necessarily want to do which is to buy a product that I don't necessarily need. So, am I unfounded in this? How do you use behavioral economics with marketing in a positive way to help my well-being?
3: It's a very good, it's a very good question, and it depends who I'm talking to. I mean, you've talked about the e-word, you've talked about ethics, um, and it's very difficult to talk about behavioral economics without having a view about the ethics of it. I mean, there are some, um, yeah,
2: because you're manipulating people's behaviour, aren't
3: you? You are, and and I come from a background, as I say, marketing and advertising, where by and large that's sort of what I do, and I've managed to make my peace with that. You know, I can sleep at night generally, but there are some examples betting, where I've declined to um, offer my services because I think, I think there are ethical issues involved. But you're in terms of finance. I think a lot of what I'm doing, because what, what you're suggesting is I, th- I think is fair enough, which is sometimes I work with companies to help them get, them to or get consumers or, or, or users to understand their products. But often what I think is I'm inoculating people against those very tactics. So I'm actually doing an awful lot with, with not just with financial companies, but actually um, other groups, other sort of, um, uh, sort of social organisations, who are trying to improve the calibre of our decision-making generally. So as you're, as you're intimating there, what I talk about behavioural economics that is is really about warning them about these tricks, warning them about framing, warning them about maximising, warning them about appeals to system one, which are entirely emotional, warning them about some of the other tricks that I've talked about. And, and you're absolutely right. I think that's an absolute valid and legitimate criticism. One of the things I'd love to do, and I've gone like one percent of the journey to doing this is is to get schools to teach behavioral children as part of whatever it's called these days civic something civic responsibility Um, i think it's extremely important that we breed a society of people who are aware about how the brain works and how choices are made so that when they are confronted with uh, i don't know let's say the darker side of marketing and advertising and I think Rushkoff calls them coercion professionals, <laughs> that they're aware of the tricks of the trade. And I don't see any problem with that. I, I'm very happy doing either of them. And you're right, I have to be very careful about these ethical issues because if you are talking about emotions, um, if you are talking about the unconscious and the implicit, and you just have to look at the politics of the world at the moment, you can see where the dangers lie with that. One of the interesting principles of, of happiness in the behavioural economics world is, is reciprocal altruism. Uh, I scratch you scratch your uh, my back I scratch yours one of the best ways it seems to have of helping yourself or feeling good is helping other people so again that's something that may seem a slightly you know left field comment uh, in this area again it, in terms of how you spend money not just in sort of anthropic sense but it does be the case that spending money in that slightly more altruistic way and again going back to savings and pensions perhaps as you mentioned before that does seem to affect our happiness more um, strategically and in a more t- long-term sense than just buying, you know, a new phone tomorrow.
1: Well, we do some uh, financial well-being in the workplace workshops, and one of the things I'm yes, saying yes. is that um, I, I have never yet met a 20-year-old for whom pensions are the most important thing in their lives. I've also never yet met a 17-year-old who the pigeon isn't one of the most important things in their lives. Absolutely. It's the same person. So I wonder if one of the things we can do is trying to get younger people to see their future self as a different person.
3: Okay, let me give you, you've actually touched on something that I was going to try and come back to. Because this is an issue that I I often get asked about. And you're right. I think that is pretty much the answer that some of the experts have given, which is... One of the best ways that you can think about your future, financial or otherwise, is to talk to people who are there already. Now, admittedly, if you talk to a 50 or 60 year old now, things are going to be different in the next 20 or 30 years. But one of the things I've done this, I've done this as a research exercise because I do some sort of qualitative research as well. I have done that, I've done that in a financial field with a client. Um, I've actually got sort of students and and young people. I refuse to call them millennials, by the way. can't bear that demographic label. Um, I've got them actually to talk to, not necessarily their parents or grandparents, but other people of that age. They might be experts. They might not be experts. Um, Because then what you do, because again, this is the problem with system one. System one is so um, built on the assumptions that the future is going to be just like the present. And that what we think in five or 10 years is what we think now. So I think your, your comment is absolutely right, which is we need to break out of our current self and imagine what our future self will be like by talking to some sort of representative of that. So I think you're absolutely right. That is definitely one of the things that I recommend that people do to, to avoid the trap of thinking about the, 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 the future as just a version of the present.
1: Yeah absolutely fascinating stuff thank you so much for for showing some of this with us been a pleasure your storytelling book is 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 obviously excellent but the inspiratorium i recommend everybody to just dip in and out anytime they like it is so full of ideas to kick off your own ideas so we will be giving away a few copies of the inspiratorium when the podcast goes out so we'll make sure
3: we copy you on the tweets and
1: uh, thank you so much for joining us
3: please do i feel obliged to end up with a final plug uh, i've got a new book out called incitations which is a collection of quotes expressions and words again which are designed to sort of incite your thought. so continuing in that area of, of just getting people to think differently brilliant
0: thanks. thanks so much for joining us
3: cheers chris thanks a lot
0: fascinating stuff as if, i do enjoy your interviews chris even though that one did sound like it was being carried out in a bathroom <laughs> <laughs> but for, yeah fascinating stuff opting in rather than opting out all of those issues that were raised there yeah it's system
1: one system two thinking stuff there's the, the book that, that came from if anybody wants to do some more reading is thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman i think he mentioned daniel kahneman in the
0: interview that's a fascinating book uh, about how we think and, and how we can make better decisions I was interested in in your comment, Chris, your version of advertising, your classification of advertising, which is people trying to persuade you to buy something that you don't want. I think an advertiser would probably say they're trying to persuade you to buy something you didn't know you wanted. (laughs) It's a fine (laughs) line, isn't it? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. but, But very interesting that the way in which they use some of those techniques in order to persuade you apart with your money. Yeah, mate. absolutely. And and
1: as he says, he's, he's made his peace with it and he won't work with people where it's not right. But yeah, it, it, it's an interesting insight into how advertising works uh, to help us to maybe deflect it sometimes. So
0: uh, I'm sure we've all bought things and we've gone home and think, why on earth did I buy that? Well, we've, we've
1: these talked,
2: are the reasons why.
0: We've talked about this before, haven't we? Have indeed. Tom, Can I anything
2: to add Yeah, there? I'm going to do a shameless plug, if you don't mind. I was really interested in the ideas around Systems 1 and Systems 2 about you need to be more reflective, or is System 2 is more reflective, yep. rather than that knee-jerk. And I think it's really difficult to drag yourself into System 2 thinking. And that's what a financial planner can really help you with, is, is to try and get you away from knee-jerk reactions. Maybe put in some of those good behaviours like automation and direct debits into various savings pots. But yeah, enabling you to... Be more controlled about your decision making, and actually think about it.
1: Sorry, we've said this on this podcast before. I think it bears repeating that if you currently have a financial advisor who doesn't talk to you about these sort of things and asked you about your behaviours, frankly, get a new one because they're not helping you in the way that they really should be. And there's plenty of good financial planners out there now who do get this stuff, and will talk to you about it. Exactly. Obviously, we'll
0: name no names. We'll make some (laughs) finance. Right. I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, As ever, it's been a pleasure, gentlemen, to um, sit here and chat through financial wellbeing issues. And we hope that our listeners have enjoyed it too. And we look forward to you joining us again for another edition of the Financial Wellbeing Podcast.
3: If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial wellbeing. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at finwellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, And David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think.